0: Well, good evening, church. We on here? Test, test. There we go. I hear it. My voice is usually loud enough to carry if it didn't work, but uh, um, but we're probably better with amplification, I would think. So, well, good evening. It's great to be back with you tonight. I'm grateful for the chance um, just to be able to talk about uh, the Lord, talk, to talk about the truth, um, to open God's word and uh, so I hope that tonight will prove to be a fruitful time for, for all of us. Let's pray real quick, and then we will get started. God, we entrust this time to you. We seek your spirit to be our teacher. We seek him to work in our hearts, to transform us, to draw us to a deeper devotion to you, a greater love for you, God. And so I pray that all the things tonight uh, would would point us in that direction and that uh, would empower us to be faithful heralds and servants uh, of the truth to those around us that desperately need to hear it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Last week we looked at the issue of evil and suffering. Massive issue, important issue, critical question that lots of people struggle with. And I hope that some of what we talked about last week maybe was helpful to you, either in just helping build a stronger foundation in your own mind and heart related to the Christian response to that question and really what, in my opinion, is compelling and persuasive about that answer in comparison to the other answers that we can find um, in the world around us. What I'd like to do tonight is to come back from any one particular issue and deal more broadly with sort of an introduction into just how to have good effective conversations with people. It's a little bit of an introductory sort of look at just apologetics in general, which again is a word that has to do with giving a defense of. Um, Just because, and I think uh, Bill even mentioned this the other day, that just because you have the right answers doesn't mean that you are good at helping people see those answers. Those are two radically different things. So Knowing the right answers and helping getting those, get, get those across to people, um, those are two very different things, and so we want to be able to communicate those things effectively. So uh, if you have a notebook and you have a pen, I would encourage you to take notes. There's going to be a lot of things sort of dumped out there. I'm going to try to get as much content to you in the time that we have tonight. It may seem a little bit like drinking from a fire hydrant, but with the limited time we have, we're just going to try to get as much out there as we can as it relates to this subject. We looked at 1 Peter 3.15, I think, last week. We, we referenced it as it relates to apologetics, that it has to do with this idea of giving a defense of the hope that is within us. So we see in that particular verse, 1 Peter 3.15, a call to be prepared to give a defense of why we are Christians, why we believe what we believe. Another valuable verse to us is in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Turn with me there. This verse is really valuable because the image that it uses is one that I think is helpful for a definition of apologetics that I'm going to give you guys here in a little bit. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 4 and 5. If you have a Bible, you're welcome to turn there. Here's, there's, this is what it says. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God... And take every thought captive to obey Christ. So we see, this, we see this message from Paul that, listen, any knowledge, any opinion set up against God and set up against the truth is something that we want to, in his words, destroy. All right? It's very strong language. Now, we're going to get to something here in a little bit. That does not mean that we, <laughs> we go into attack mode against people. All right, there's a radical difference between attacking ideas and attacking people. But you can hear the language of Paul here. Ideas, knowledge, opinions that are set up against God, we want to destroy those. We want to tear those down. We want to break those walls down. Um, Turn with me to Matthew chapter 22, verse 37. This is a verse that should be familiar to you, but I bring it up because I think it has something valuable to say to us in relation to what we're talking about tonight, Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, 37, where many of Israel's teachers and Pharisees and Sadducees come to Jesus and they say, what is the greatest commandment? And what is Jesus' answer? You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul. What's that next word? Mind. That word, interestingly enough, is left out of Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 6, which Jesus is actually quoting here. Um, But he mentions it here, this word mind. The mind is something that we as Christians are called to cultivate, and we are called to develop. And not only that, it tells us here that it does what? It breeds love for God. So we need to have a Christian mind because it helps us love God more deeply, Sometimes we have sort of a negative attitude in the church about sort of being intellectual, so to speak. Even things we say like this phrase right here. And I realize that when we use this phrase, we're trying to communicate something that can be helpful, but on the other side, it can also not be helpful. This phrase right here. Well, we went from having a head knowledge to having a heart knowledge. Now, I think we've all probably heard that said and understand that there's a difference between just understanding something and actually believing it, but what does it do? It communicates that having head knowledge is what? It's not good enough. It's a negative thing. We live in a very experiential, emotional sort of church culture today in what we do in corporate worship and even a lot of the teaching that we do. Through years and years of being at youth camps and church youth groups and all kinds of environments like that, it's amazing how many students that even when they're responding to the Lord, all they can really articulate is that they felt something and they needed to draw near. They can't articulate any real clear understanding of what the gospel is. They can't really explain why the death and resurrection of Christ is important for them understanding what's going on in their heart and life in that moment. They just felt something. So we live in a very anti-intellectual sort of church culture in a lot of ways today in America that can be, I think, harmful and detrimental because what happens when we don't have a Christian mind, a mind that's committed to thinking well about the things of God? Our love for God is weakened. So love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. I want us to go to one more passage real quick in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. <clears throat> Another famous passage. And what we see here is Paul laying out his case for the historical resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So, it's a very important passage um, for the Apostle Paul and for us as the church. And there's something I want you to catch that as he starts in verse one, now I would remind you, brothers, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. You hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. And he continues on by talking about some things. But I want you to see verse 14 in particular, and this is important. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain hear what Paul is saying here. It doesn't matter whether Christianity brought about some good change in your life. It didn't matter if you felt something in your heart at one point in time. It doesn't matter like whether your family was this, or it doesn't matter all of those other things that may may have contributed to why someone might be a Christian. If Jesus did not actually, historically rise from the dead, stop being a Christian. Go do something else with your life. Doesn't matter how it makes you feel. Doesn't matter whether all your friends are there. Doesn't matter whether your life's gotten better. Go do something else with your life because following this is vanity. Hear what Paul's saying there? If Jesus did not actually Rise from the dead. So, our faith has to have something behind it more than just a personal experience. Not that that's not valuable, not that that's import, not important, but there are lots of people from lots of other religious backgrounds who, whose lives get better because they decided to practice that faith, who had what appeared to be real experiences in the context of their faith. Does that mean that their faiths are right? I remember listening to a well-known apologist tell the story once of interacting with a lady who was Mormon, which technically the Mormon church now is officially called the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. But for the moment, as I tell this story, this older woman, as she was being presented with the gospel, said, listen, I'm just going to save you guys a lot of time. There's no way you can say anything that will actually cause me to believe what you have to say. And they said, well, why is that? And she said, because I remember one time I was headed to the temple to do baptism for the dead. I don't want to get into a lot of Mormon theology at the moment. You'll just have to, maybe we can talk about that later. But she's headed to her temple. She's being baptized for the dead in Mormonism. People that have already died, that are already died have already died. They're disembodied spirits. They can have faith. They can repent, but they can't be baptized their spirits. So someone has to do that for them if they hope eventually to maybe make it to heaven one day, the third heaven one day. So this lady's going to do her faithful duty as one who's a part of that church. She goes to the temple. They have a little card. She's got names of family members. She's got names of other people that she can be baptized for. The church recognizes it. The church logs it. They, uh, They keep track of who's been baptized for, who hasn't. And as she's going down under the water, she sees a spirit for what appears to be each person on her list up there in the room. And they appear to be in anguish. And as she's baptized for each one, she comes up and one of those spirits looks at her, smiles, and floats off. Finally, she gets to the end of her list. She's done, finished doing all these things. And there's one more spirit still there. And they said, you're done. And she said, I'm not done. There's one more list, one more name that we missed. They said, no, we've looked at the whole list. She's like, check again. So they go back, they look. Like, we've done all the names. She said, we missed a name, check again. They look again. They come back, they say to her, no, we didn't. She said, check again. The third time they look and they realize there was a name that was missed. So she's baptized for that name. She comes up. And she sees that spirit float off. She said, that was real. I saw it. I experienced it. There's no way that you can say anything to convince me that what I believe isn't the truth. Now, do I believe that what she experienced was the truth, was something that comes from God, (laughs) something ordained by Scripture? Absolutely not. But because she had a real experience that was a part of her faith, she was convinced nothing else was going to be true. Experience alone is not enough to undergird a strong faith built on the truth. And so Paul recognizes here that, listen, maybe Christianity has made a difference in my life. Maybe it's made a difference in my family's life. Maybe it's changed my life for the better. Maybe I've felt some real things that feel like God when I've been in church. But if Jesus Christ didn't actually rise from the dead, None of it is real, and none of it is from God. You hear that? So, having a strong faith girded with the truth, thought out and, and really understanding the value and importance of some of these kinds of questions and processing these questions and having a mind that is reconciled to some of these things is an important thing for us as Christians. It builds confidence in our faith and... On top of that, it develops love for God. So, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 there. Faith rooted in the truthfulness of Jesus' historical death, burial, and resurrection. So we want to have a faith that's more than just something built on experience, but it's built on something deeper, something that we see in scripture, even the apostle Paul lays out for us, is rooted in actual historical event. By the way, that's left Christianity open to way more attack than a lot of other religions in the world. Because we ground it in something that we believe actually happened. Well, now we can study and see whether those things really happened, right? See, if if, if all the discussion is like what my experience is versus your experience, all we get into is just a glorified game of he said, she said. You with me on that? Like, it's a trump card that can't be beat. Because who am I to question your experience? So how can I evaluate whether what you believe really is the truth or not? Christianity says, listen, we're not rooted simply in the experience that we have. We're rooted in history. Because of that, Christianity can be critiqued and studied more than any other religion that exists in the world, which means it can be attacked more than any other religion in the world. And it's astounding how Christianity has stood up to attack through the centuries and millennia. It really has. But I believe there is an integrity to a faith that says we can question its validity or not. You with me? As opposed to just take my word for it because it's, it's real in my life. <clears throat> so Christianity rooted in history. So the work of, the, of apologetics, defending the faith, having reasons for our faith are things that are important and valuable and uh, things that hopefully we can have a feel for. And th- those are things that hopefully we can communicate to others. All right. So how to just begin to have good conversations. Here's point number one. And man, that introduction took a long time. We're going to have to like boogie here through this stuff, but we'll do our best. Number one, respect people and their beliefs. This may sound basic and this may sound like something assumed, but quite frankly, it's really not. It's really not. I can't tell you how many people I've talked to through the years that have said this right here to me. They said, Josh, this is the first time I've had a friendly conversation with a Christian about my struggles with Christianity. Normally, people just jump down my throat. And I realize there's a sense, probably for all of us, I know what this is like, I've felt this, where someone starts talking about all the reasons that, you know, they think Christianity's wrong or why they don't believe or whatever, and you just want to go into attack mode. You just want to come after them. But you can't do that. (laughs) You can't do that. You've got to, I think, show a level of respect for that person and respect for um, what they believe. Let me give you a few examples. Um, Number one, I made reference to the Mormon Church just a moment ago and the fact that their name has officially changed. The Mormon Church now is officially called the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Not LDS, not Latter-day Saints, not Mormons. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So if you're a a member of that church, I was just about to say it again, I'm trying to train myself to say the right thing. (laughs) I'm trying to train myself to not use those words in describing that church as well. Um, But if you're a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and you introduce yourself to someone or tell them what you believe, you are supposed to say, I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. You can't say Mormon, can't say LDS, can't say Latter-day Saints. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints believes in a living prophet. So the president of their church is a living prophet, fairly similar, it's a little bit different, but fairly similar to the idea of a pope okay? And they can continue to speak for God to his people. We believe in closed revelation as Christians. We believe that God has given us everything he intends to give us in the Bible, and it's closed. No one else speaks for God anymore. Not everyone believes that. They certainly don't believe that. So one of the first acts as the new president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Russell Nelson, who's over 90 and evidently is one fine human specimen, still skis at age 94 down the black slopes, Um, his first declaration for the church was that this is to be our new official name. We can sit and question why that would be. I'm inclined to think part of that's probably because of the baggage of some of those other names and their history and other things that come with that. But nevertheless, the name was officially changed. So... I want to do my best when I am around people, and particularly when I am around people of that faith, to do what? To not use the word Mormon. You know why? Because it communicates that I know something accurate about their faith to them. I've cared enough to know that. And it shows a level of respect for their faith may seem like a simple thing, but it's amazing how even something small and simple like that communicates a level of respect that tears down walls. So again, it's hard for me not to use the word Mormon because I'm used to using that word. But I do my best to train myself to say the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints because that's what they're supposed to be called and what they're supposed to call themselves. Let me give you another one. I don't know what the chances are that you would run into a Muslim Here in Oklahoma, chances aren't high, but there are some here. Just because you run into a Muslim does not mean that you are running into a radical Muslim. Okay? There are many Muslims who live their life in accordance with a commitment to peace. Now, what the Quran teaches, and whether the Quran teaches peace or a measure of violence that Muslims should be called to. That's a different question if you want to debate what the Quran actually teaches. But there are many people who are Muslims who do not believe that all of the things going on with radical Islam are right. So don't assume that if you start talking to someone that is a Muslim that they are okay with suicide bombers and blowing up American buildings. Give them the benefit of the doubt. Show them some respect. Doesn't mean they're right, but we can be respectful to them. We live in a cl- political climate that is unbelievably charged, do we not? We are becoming more and more polarized by the month, much less the year, much, the, much less the, the, the four-year election cycle. <laughs> even in the way that we respond to other Christians much less other people in the culture continues to become that much more like vitriolic in the way that we talk to one another listen that doesn't help break down the walls that are in the way of people responding in faith to Christ okay doesn't mean that you have to share their opinion but you can be respectful of them and their views And interact with those views, even challenge those views, while also being respectful to the person. Let me give you an example. Take the the topic of evolution. Take the topic of Darwinian evolution. Monkeys that become human beings. By the way, that idea is largely rejected even in the academy today. Even those who are evolutionists, for the most part, reject Darwinian evolution. They have alternative narratives for explaining how in the world we got to where we got. It's still evolutionary, but it's different. That being said, see if you can hear the difference between these two statements. Let's say someone believes in that. I could say this to him: I could say, I don't see how anyone in their right mind would believe that a monkey could become a human being. Okay? That's one. But here's another one. You could say this. You know, there's a great book out there by an author named Michael Hay. He wrote a book called Darwin's Black Box. And in that book, he talks about this idea, this concept called irreducible complexity. Irreducible complexity is the idea of a machine that is so complex that you can't take pieces away and it still function. And his work has been largely influential in undermining Darwin's claim related to Darwinian sorts of mutations and changes in this evolutionary process. I own that book. Do you think you might want to read it? Hear the difference in those two statements? In one, I attacked a person. I made them feel stupid for believing something. In another, I challenged an idea, I replaced, I tried to communicate an idea that was better, and I asked them if they would be interested in considering that idea. See the difference? You can challenge ideas and still respect people and what they believe. And we have a responsibility, I believe, if we want to tear walls down rather than build them, to attack ideas but not people, to be respectful of the people that we interact with. Again, it may seem fairly basic to make a statement like that. Unfortunately, it doesn't always work out that way. It's amazing how many people have felt attacked, (laughs) wrongly attacked like Christians just jump down their throats every time they have challenges. Um, let, me, let me say one other thing here that I think is important, uh, just because I don't know that there's a better place to say it, but it's this. We do a massive disservice to our young people and even to many adults, if this is who they are, um, in the church by not creating a safe space for them to voice and work through their doubts and struggles. What usually happens when a kid comes in and they're not sure that they really believe in God? What happens when a 16-year-old says, I don't really know whether I should believe the Bible or not. I don't know why God would send people to hell. A lot of times what happens is they get brushed by the side. You shouldn't be asking those kinds of questions. And we start to really, like, come after them, (laughs) We don't acknowledge that maybe there's a place that is good for them to ask that question and work through an answer. We don't create a safe space for them. We create a space where they feel like they can't ask that question. You know what happens when we do that? They start to get suspicious. And they start to think we have something to hide because we don't have good answers. And then what happens is they leave and they go try to answer those questions in the secular academy, which is not a place we want them working through those questions. We want them working through those questions with us in a place in the context of faith. And yet it's amazing how rarely that happens because we don't talk about the hard questions and struggles that sometimes people have as well as we should in the church. And we just blow people off, or we act like you shouldn't ask those kinds of things or talk about those certain things. And then they start to get suspicious. And eventually it leads them down a road that either they abandon the faith or their faith is so destroyed (laughs) um, that they never really recover later on down the road. So listen the church is a place where hopefully we can all communicate this is a good place. To voice your questions. That is a good question. That is a fair question. I have struggled with that question. I have had to work through that myself, and that we create a place where they feel like they can ask those questions. It's the difference between, oh, I've got these questions, I've got these struggles, I can't go to my dad, versus I have these questions, I have these struggles, I need to go ask my dad. There's a great gospel message in that too. But it's also valuable as it relates to the things that we struggle through. We want this to be a place where they come and ask, I want to be a dad where my son will come to me and ask me those questions because he feels like I will allow him the chance to think through that. And I will affirm him in that process of asking questions that are very fair and hopefully being able to work through some of those answers for himself. So I think that's worth noting and I think this is probably about as good as place as anywhere to note that. Point number 2. Don't expect people to say, "You know what? You're right." Just don't. I'm guessing most of the people in this room are parents, all right? Maybe your kids are a lot older than mine are, but your parents. <clears throat> I can tell you that uh, my oldest is 14. Is he 14? (laughs) I can't remember how long I've been married. I can't remember how old my kids are. He's 14, so we're neck deep in it, man. I can count on one hand the number of times my son has looked at me after he has listened to my well-reasoned, well-articulated, cohesive, clear argument for why we have chosen to do what we have chosen to do as parents. And he has looked at me and said, you know what, Dad, you're right. By the way, one hand also includes the number zero. Like How many of us have had kids that have looked at us in the midst of a disagreement, in the midst of an argument, and said, you know what, you're right. It doesn't happen, does it? It doesn't happen. The same is true with people you talk to. I I don't know that I can think of any times off the top of my head where someone said to me, You know what, Josh, you're right. I've heard people say, Well, you've given me a lot to think about. Normally, what they do is they change the subject. All right? They change the subject. It's not uncommon. Just because they have not acknowledged that you won the argument does not mean that you have not planted a seed of truth that can prosper and grow at some point in the future. All right? Just like your kids, just like my kids, hopefully, are hearing the things I'm saying, recognize on some level, maybe there's some wisdom to it, maybe that comes in the future. In the same way, the seeds you plant can bear fruit in the future. I'll tell you a quick story about a couple that I remember encountering. They came out of a Baptist church. They were Jehovah's Witnesses. A friend of mine who was one of my college students when I was in college ministry at the time was visited by this Jehovah's Witness couple. And what Jehovah's Witnesses do when they come to your house is they want to start by asking you this question. I don't meet a whole lot of Jehovah's Witnesses anymore. I used to meet them fairly regularly. They come by the house. Um, is they will ask you this question, man, it's really scary what's going on in the world today, isn't it? Yeah. You know why they do that? Not just because they're looking to strike up discussion, because they want to find out whether you're a vulnerable person or not. Are you the kind of person that's afraid? Are you the kind of person that's concerned? So then they can know whether or not this is the kind of person that maybe we can draw into our church. So that's what they'll do. If they feel like this is a person who is... Man, they're not strong in what they think. They're pretty fearful in their perspective of things. Then they're probably going to come back and visit you. Well, my buddy Brian is strong in the faith. I mean, really established, rooted in the faith, knows the answers to a lot of things. For whatever reason, they thought he was really insecure and vulnerable because they came back like three times. And he gave them good answers, but they kept coming back. So finally they said, would you be willing to meet with us and we bring someone else along? And he said, can I bring someone else along? They said, sure. (laughs) So he calls me. He's like, Josh, I'm meeting some Jehovah's Witnesses at Brahms in 30 minutes. They told me I can bring someone. Can you be there? And I said, I guess so. So there were actually quite a few students that were in our BCM building at the time that that call was taken. They're like, where are you going? I told them. They said, we want to go. I said, no, you can't. So what happened was they ended up coming in and getting something to eat and basically pretended to be there to eat and sat in all the tables around us. (laughs) So we sit down. We begin to talk. We begin to deal with many of the things that you deal with when you're interacting with Jehovah's Witnesses. Inevitably, you're going to come to the deity of Christ because they reject Christ as God. Um, I know that. I have verses that I'd like to get to when I'm, I'm sort of prepared for when I'm in, in conversation with them. Um, we deal with works. We deal with all kinds of things. Eventually, we get to this particular issue, and the, the couple... I don't know if I mentioned this. The couple that I'm talking to that are primary in this conversation are an older couple that had been Southern Baptist and had left Southern Baptist and were now Jehovah's Witnesses. And the, the wife, she said, she brings up 1 Corinthians 8.6. Turn with me in your Bible and look at 1 Corinthians 8.6 real quick. Now this is a verse... That I always want to get to with a Jehovah's Witness. One, because it hasn't been messed up by their by their translators, the Watchtower Society, and two, as we'll see, hopefully here in a moment, it has a very very important message, as it relates to the deity of Christ. What does it say? Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and Um, through whom we exist, all right? So I can't even remember why she brought it up. It didn't make any sense for her to bring this verse up, but she brought it up, and I took it as just from the Lord that it just came up. And I said to her, I said, Listen, you have completely misinterpreted that verse. I was actually thrilled at this point because this is a verse that I want to get to. And I said, Are you familiar with the Shema in the Old Testament? Anyone here familiar with the Shema? in the Old Testament? Anyone know what that is? The Shema, which is the Hebrew word for here, is Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 6. It is the most important passage in the Old Testament. If you read a Hebrew Bible, the letters of the first phrase in Deuteronomy 6, 4 are all bigger than all the other letters. Here is Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear O Israel hence the word shema here Hear O Israel the Lord our God the Lord is one You shall love the Lord with all of your heart soul and strength and you shall teach these things to your children etc 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 It is the most imp- important passage in the Old Testament for someone who is a Hebrew or a Jew And here's what Paul does In 1 Corinthians 8, 6, he takes the Shema, the great declaration of Jewish monotheism. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And he applies it to Jesus. Look what it says. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, who does what? From whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one what? Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So they both do the same things. God, through whom all things exist. Jesus, through whom all things exist. God, the Father, Lord Jesus Christ. He has applied the Shema to Jesus. You can find no clearer, stronger uh, affirmation of the deity of Jesus than this verse. And one of the reasons this verse is so valuable is because Paul's letters are written significantly earlier than, say, for instance, John's letters. So in the chronology of the New Testament letters or books, the Gospels are not first, even though they come first in the New Testament. Paul is the first one to write authoritative scripture essentially for the church. Paul began writing some of his letters in the 40s A.D., many of them in the 50s A.D., and then he finishes up in the early 60s. It is unlikely that any of the Gospels, maybe one of them could have been written in the 50s A.D., the others probably 60 A.D., and John would have been written in the 80s to 90s A.D. So they were the last last books or letters written. Well, the longer the time span goes, the more likelihood that someone may have taken the original teachings and just started to change them a little bit. Now, we're still talking about one lifetime, which in the grand scheme of historical criticism and textual criticism and evaluating whether texts have been changed over time, that is nothing, all right? The very fact that we're comparing that compared to everything else we have in ancient literature, the Bible is so superior to everything. We're still talking about one lifetime from the death of Jesus. But you're talking about 40 or 50 years difference between 1 Corinthians being written and, say, the Gospel of John, where we have very high Christology, very high teaching about Jesus being God. Like, for instance, in John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is very clear here, very early, that the early church, as Paul is writing, believed that Jesus was God. So it's a very, very valuable, important verse. And so I began to explain that to her, and she had no answer, and her husband started to change the subject. But as that conversation went on, I felt like in my heart, this woman, like, I need to pray for her. I don't know what it was. But I probably prayed for every week for about three months after that. I've never heard from her. I've never seen her. I've never interacted with her since then. I have no idea what happened. But for about three months, I continued to pray because there was just something about her countenance in that moment that made me think I need to pray for her, that the seed of that truth maybe would take root. There was no way in front of her husband she was going to acknowledge maybe that I might be right. But there was just some sense I had. and So I, I prayed for her. Maybe nothing happened, but I prayed for her. Just because they don't sit there and say, yes, you're right, doesn't mean that the conversation hasn't been fruitful. Um, <clears throat> I haven't even gotten close to finishing. Um, let me say this one real quick. I may try to squeeze some of this in next week, but I'll try to squeeze just a little bit more in here. Do not be afraid not to have all the answers. Don't be afraid not to have all the answers. In fact, I would say that it's actually helpful if you don't. Here's why. Because it communicates that I don't know everything. It communicates a level of honesty. It communicates a level of humility. As opposed to having this chip on your shoulder like, I got answers for whatever you have to say. I know it all. Or trying to come up with something on the fly that you weren't really prepared to answer and you ended up giving a really lousy answer anyways, you're better off not saying anything in response to that than saying something that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It's okay not to have all the answers. So don't feel like you have to. There's lots of times where I hear things people say and I'm like, I have no idea how to respond to that either because it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me or maybe it's something that I haven't quite thought about before. And I'll just say, That's a really good question. I don't know that I've ever thought about it that way, but I'm going to. And by the way, when that moment comes, make sure that you follow up. Follow up and go try to think about a really good response to it. Try to come up with something. See if you can find something, and then go back to them and see if you can re-engage them in that conversation. What it communicates is you were serious about the conversation you had with them. And it showed them that you followed up. You cared enough to follow up. Now, whether they want more information or whether they really wanted it to go any further than that conversation or not, who knows? But you communicated to them that it mattered enough to you to find an answer. It benefited you maybe by going and trying to find a better answer and thinking through it. And it also gave you a chance to help share that with them or at least communicate that you cared enough to share that back with them. Don't feel like you have to have all the answers. No one has all the answers. There's always things that come up that you may not know. Um, All right, let me try to squeeze this in really quick. Um, Try to get to the root of the problem. I have spent lots of conversations, lots of years... Um, lots of hours over the course of years in conversations with people where I sat there and just answered their questions, and then they asked something else, and then they asked something else, and then they asked something else. And then a couple hours later, I feel like we've just gone around in circles and haven't gotten anywhere. And so learning the hard way, I've come to realize that sometimes what people act like their issue is, and maybe they have intellectual issues with Christianity, really underneath the surface, that's not the real issue. And so, trying to find a way to really diagnose what the real problem can be helpful. I can usually find early on in the conversation whether they genuinely have intellectual issues and questions that they're struggling with, or whether those are just sort of a front. Reality is, most people make decisions about what they believe for a lot of reasons other than intellectual considerations. As we talked about earlier, maybe people made people made decisions because of relationships. People made decisions because of experiences. All kinds of reasons, um, and the same is true as far as the reasons why maybe they don't want to believe. Uh, so while on the surface people may act like, well, you know, I just have a problem with Christianity because of yeah, you know, I'm just not sure whether God exists or whether the problem is suffering evil or I just don't know why God would send people to hell. I can't believe in that kind of God. Those kinds of things. What's really maybe going on to the surface is they had a bad experience at one point in church a long time ago and their heart is bitter toward Christians. Or maybe their parents got divorced when they were a kid and they still blame God for it because they prayed and asked God not to let that happen. you with me? Maybe those are the things really going on down in their heart that are the real issues. Um, So if you can find a way in conversation to sort of let people talk, and most of the time, by the way, people want to talk. They don't typically want to be preached at, but they do want to tell you what they think. So if you will learn to ask good questions and let them talk, they will typically want to do that. So if you will just get them talking, and hopefully get them to share a little bit about their life and their experience and other things with you, it not only gives you time to think, but it also gives you time to kind of get a feel for who they are and what those real issues may be. I mean, down to something really, really trivial, I remember having a conversation with someone that was a friend of mine, um, and he came to me and he said, man, I'm really kind of struggling with this question, with this issue, and I remember asking him, well, how are things going in your life lately? How with this and that. Come to find out he was just really, really burned out with school and with work and time and everything. And I said to him, I said, here's the deal, man. Why don't you go get some chicken express to, for dinner? Because I knew he liked to eat chicken express. And I said, eat a big chicken express meal. Like, don't hold back. I, even, I think I even offered to pay for it. And then number two, get a good night's sleep. And then let's meet tomorrow and talk about it. We met the next day to talk about it, he came in and said, man, I'm feeling so much better. To be honest, it's not even an issue anymore. Sometimes you never know the things going on in people's lives that may be impacting their mind um, and, and even their heart. So you never know sometimes what the root issues may be. Sometimes it may be something simple like that. Sometimes it may be something a little, little deeper. But the better you can do to figure out what the real issue is, the better you can help tear down the wall that needs to be torn down. Because people that sit there and just ask a lot of questions that is just a cover, it's not going to produce anything. One more quick story. I had a former student when I was a youth minister where um, this young man was a sophomore in high school. He became really Twitter-pated with one of the girls in our youth group. And he was extremely bright. He eventually went on to study like nuclear physics at Northern Arizona University. And, uh, and so he would challenge Christians on what they believed and they wouldn't have any answers. And he eventually met this, this girl and it's not that she was intellectual in the way he was, but she wouldn't, she didn't act intimidated by the things that he would say, which made him like, which made him like her even more. So he eventually came to church with her and a few months of hearing the gospel, getting to know us, getting to know me, he kind of came to that crisis of belief moment for himself. And he was reading and studying a book written by an atheist about how everything came into existence. And as he was reading this book that night, he just read through what the guy was saying at this one particular part, and he thought to himself in that moment, because he was really at that moment where like, I need to decide one way or the not, one way one or another. I've heard everything there is to hear. Like, I've got to make a choice. And he ended up reading this passage written by an atheist and saying, there's no way. That's how everything came into being. Now, after That was resolved in his mind. He did not need me to sit there and make a case for the resurrection of Jesus as a historical event. He did not need me to build a strong argument for the reliability of the New Testament. He did not need me to deal with the question of whether all roads lead to God and all religions go to heaven. That was the wall that needed to be torn down for him and he was ready to put faith in Jesus. That was the wall. So sometimes it requires us to converse with people see if we can figure out what the real issue is so that we can tear that wall down because that wall is the wall that's keeping them from responding in faith. It's not always the first one they put out there, but it takes conversation, it takes listening, it takes respect. Um, Sometimes to be able to get to that point to earn the right, in some ways, to get to the point where you can hopefully help respond with an answer that's truth, so that you can provide that for them, and hopefully, in the midst of it, they respond in faith. Um, listen, and this is a quick statement just about evangelism, not so much about apologetics, but um, I'm amazed how many people I talk to I, I talk to, that are bad at evangelism that have never done it. All right? They're convinced they're bad at it, but they have never done it. Listen, no one is good at anything when they've never done it. Way too many Christians are on the sidelines. They're fully suited up in pads, but they are sitting on the bench, hanging out on the sidelines, doing nothing. Doing nothing. Let me tell you something. The bench is boring. If you write anything down tonight, write that down. It has nothing to do with apologetics, but please write that down. The bench is boring. We have way too many Christians whose faith is lazy and apathetic and indifferent, and they're bored because they've refused to actually get in the game. They've sat on the sidelines. Listen, when you get in the game, there's a good chance you're going to get hit, right? There's a good chance you're going to get roughed up. There's a good chance you could get injured. But listen, that's why you're there, to play. Are you with me? When it, Christianity is not exciting and invigorating and exhilarating because you're sitting on the bench, do you ever read the biographies of great Christians and the stories and hear the testimonies of people who are out there telling amazing stories and think, to them, and think to yourself, I wish that happened in my life? I do. I read the stories of great missionaries. I read the stories of great faithful Christians. I even hear the personal testimonies of just regular Christians in church that are just committed to being who God calls them to be and not living on the sidelines. And I'm inspired by those things and I feel the sense of, Josh, like, be that guy. Listen, God has called you, not just the professional Christians that help lead this staff at this church, to share the gospel and to make disciples. Pastor Bill said it a couple weeks ago, didn't he? He said the word preach was not just for the preachers. It's not just what happens up here. It is to herald, and it is something God calls all of us to do get in the game. You will be bad at it at first, but just keep practicing and keep doing it. Open up channels of communication with people. If the first question you get is one you don't have a clue how to answer, then tell them, that's a great question. I'm going to go look for the answer. And there you're off and running. It doesn't happen overnight. No one gets good at this overnight. But listen, I can tell you that if you would choose and decide to be a part of sharing the gospel, to be a part of engaging people with the truth, even if it means engaging them in hard conversations, even if it means pushing yourself to have to dig deep and study and find some answers that you didn't have to get before, let me tell you, your faith will be vibrant because of it. You will pray more. You will study the Bible more. You will care about spiritual things more. It is exhilarating, and there is nothing that emboldens and empowers sincere and true faith like leading someone to Jesus like leading someone to Jesus. So my last challenge to you really isn't anything to do with apologetics. It's really just get out there and get off the sideline. The bench is boring. It's riskier, it's scarier, but it's way, way more exciting. (laughs) And don't worry if you don't have all the answers. Just go get in the game and learn as you go. You with me? All right, let's pray. God, I pray that you would help raise up a group of people here at this church who are committed to putting in the work and being the kind of people who share the gospel boldly, who are rooted in a strong faith, a faith grounded in more than just an experience. God, a faith really rooted in the truth of the gospel and the reality of Jesus his life, his work, and most importantly, his death and his resurrection, God. God, build up the kind of church that has a message of strength. God, that approaches people with compassion and respect and reaches people that it hasn't reached before with the gospel. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.